Hello, dear listeners. I wanted to add a little preface to this bittersweet episode I'm putting out for you to tide us over through the holidays and into the new year. Before my beloved partner and co-host Catherine Brobeck passed away, we actually recorded what we thought was just one more Poirot short story episode among many, but which turned out to be the last episode we ever recorded. And it's taken me a while to get up the courage and stamina, quite honestly, to edit that episode. But edit it, I have. And it is this episode you'll be listening to shortly. And as painful as it is to hear Catherine's voice knowing that she's gone or to hear us recount so casually and cheerfully how our friendship began, not knowing what was about to happen... I think what's most difficult is listening to us talk so blithely about death and murder, given what happened literally days later. Though I'd urge you to push past your first instinct to wince and cringe, which was definitely my first instinct too. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, and I actually think it's pretty profound how murder mysteries take something as difficult as death and refashion it for purposes of fun and entertainment. I actually think it's quite moving that someone like Agatha Christie chose to insert death into every story she wrote, barring the jewel heist, of course, which I think both Catherine and I would acknowledge aren't Christie's best on the whole. As anyone who listens to this podcast regularly will know, Agatha Christie herself was no stranger to death. She knew it from when she was 11 and her doting father died. She was a firsthand witness to her mother's agony over the loss of her father. And in her autobiography, oh yes, I'm going to quote from the autobiography right now. You know Catherine would have appreciated that. In her autobiography, Christy recounts trying to comfort her mother with the platitude that her father was at peace. And she asked her mother, you wouldn't want him back, would you? To which her mother, Clara, replied, yes, I would. I'd force him to come back if I could. I want him. I want him back here now in this world with me. I mean, I get it, sadly. We also know that Christy survived two world wars in which she lost countless friends and relatives, including her own son-in-law in 1944. And we know it was the death of her beloved mother that contributed significantly to the mental breakdown that culminated in her infamous disappearance. So death was not kind to Agatha Christie, just as it isn't kind to any of us. And yet Christie chose to take it up to warp it and fashion it for her own purposes, to stare it in the face and say, I am going to use you for fun. So really, what better way to celebrate that bravery and the joie de vivre behind it than by delighting in and savoring the fictional versions of death that Christie created? I'm actually really grateful that I have one more of these joint love fests to share with you that Catherine and I made. And I hope at the very least you can appreciate it, even if enjoying it isn't possible. So I want to thank you again for all the support and kind words you've sent my way over the past week. There's quite simply too much of it to respond to individually, I'm thrilled to say. But please know I've read every single word you've written to me, and I so, so appreciate it. Have a wonderful end of year, whatever you may be up to uh, in this month. I do look forward to much more to come in the new year. And now on with the episode. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. 
And we are covering a Poirot short story, which, Kemper, you know I always love. I as well, of course. What are we covering this week? We are covering How Does Your Garden Grow? Mm. One of these Christie titles that does have punctuation, there is a question mark at the end of that. So I suppose I should say, How Does Your Garden Grow? With cockle shells and silver bells and pretty maids all in a row? Perhaps, uh, as Catherine is alluding to, dear listeners, we've got a nursery rhyme story on our hands here. We haven't Mm. had one of these in a while. I'm very excited. And uh, it does actually apply here in a way that it doesn't sometimes. So It, it actually very much applies here. You know, John Curran actually had some very complimentary things to say about this short story. And one of them was that the story's connection to its nursery rhyme is much stronger than we got in Sing a Song of Sixpence, which we did already cover. And Four in Twenty Blackbirds, those come from the same nursery rhyme. We actually have not yet covered Four in Twenty Blackbirds. I believe that that is the last Poirot short story ever written. So we still have that ahead of us. Thank God. But yeah, we've got shells here. We've got a garden. We've got a Mary. So this nursery rhyme is very much a part of this story. And I'm I'm here for it. I know I give Christy some grief sometimes for the nursery rhyme stories, but for a short story, it feels more appropriate. Agreed. So a little bit on publishing. Uh, It was published in The Strand in August of 1935, obviously in the UK. It was published in collection form in The Regatta Mystery and Other Stories in the US in 1939. And then in Poirot's early cases, that would have been Collins Crime finally publishing it in 1974 and later that year in a slightly name-changed edition, but the same collection in the US. Yeah, and interestingly, I learned from our good friend Mark Aldridge in his most recent book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, that this short story was actually under consideration for the Murder in the Muse collection, though it ultimately wasn't chosen. Obviously, that meant they, at one point, were thinking of going in quite a different direction because this is not a very long story. And obviously, the Murder in the Muse collection features novellas, even though they very much vary by length. So in the collection as published, that would seem very strange. But yeah, I thought that was a little interesting factoid. You know how I love my factoids, Catherine. Uh, (laughs) Shall we move right along onto the victim? We shall. And it's one Miss Amelia Barrowby, who is an elderly lady who keels over. Spoiler alert, it was strychnine. I mean, this is how I know that I've been living in Christie's world for too long. I felt nostalgic at the return of Strychnine because that, you know, I suppose this is a little bit of a spoiler, but it's a minor one. You know, that is the poison featured in Christie's first novel, The Mysterious Affair of Styles. And it's just a classic poison, isn't it? Like, I just, it feels like it's got that, that whiff, not of almonds, but of just sort of golden age detective fiction, doesn't it? It really does, although in, this novel in particular is going to make the weird point that it's a, not really a good choice to use because it tastes so bitter. It's actually really hard to administer to someone, right? Because you'll you'll know it immediately because it tastes extremely bitter and disgusting, <laughs> right? Like it's not one of these tasteless poisons. Yeah, it's interesting. And Christy did get around that convincingly in the mysterious affair at style. So we shall see if she did the same here. I think she did, actually. I don't know, given the mechanism that we'll get to. I don't know about that if I buy it. 
but we'll get there. Okay. Well, it sounds like we have a little debate on our hands. So let's talk about our suspects. It is everyone in the story, but since it's a short story, it's not that many people. First up, we have Mrs. Mary Delafontaine, who is Miss Amelia Barrowby's niece. She is an avid gardener and she lives at Rosebank. And I actually just have to point out that Mary Delafontaine is sort of a significant name within the Christie verse or Christie's oeuvre because the name just pops up a lot. And um, John Curran actually talks about this, that it appears in the course of her plotting in her notebooks for both Third Girl and Ordeal by Innocence, even though the name is not used in the final plot of either novel, but the name was used in The Pale Horse. Mary Delafontaine is a friend of Mrs. Oliver's, and she's one of the victims, one of the many victims in that book. So I think it's interesting. This was a name that she liked or remarked on or found interesting, and um, she used it multiple times, which she didn't usually do. So I just wanted to note that. I wonder if she had somebody named Mary Delafontaine in her life that she didn't write about that she wanted to um, murder constantly. Like what if Mary Delafontaine was basically like the mean girl, you know, down the block? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. In in Torquay. And she was like, Mary Delafontaine, you'll see. I'll show you Mary (laughs) Delafontaine. (laughs) It's like when you write somebody, a real person into, or if it was like a rhyming name, Mm -hmm. you know, if it was really, you know, Carrie Della something, you right. know, you know that the person's going to read it and they're just appalled by the fact that they're the murder victim. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Back to our suspects. We have yes. Mr. Delafontaine, who's the really hapless husband here. Yeah. He might not be a plus number one husband material. Let's just put it that way. And then last, we have Katrina Riger, who is the Russian. Oh, yes. Russian helpmeet of Miss Amelia Barrowby. So she's sort of a companion character, but a very unusual one because she is not English. She is not dithering or older. She is actually a young Russian woman with some mystery about her. So we will be delving into that mystery as we get into the world as it appears to be. Take it away, Catherine. Miss Amelia Barrowby, an elderly lady writes Poirot a very random and odd letter that specifies absolutely nothing other than that she has a problem, right? There's also like a letter inside the letter. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like she's, right. she's doing like the box inside a box inside a box thing <laughs> just because she's like wants it to be super private, right? And it's bizarre. It's basically like this has to just be strictly confidential, Blah, blah, blah. But she doesn't make any mention of what the issue is. And basically, the most information that he gets is the postmark, which is from this estate, Rosebank, in Charmin's Green. Right. So Poirot actually annoys one Miss Lemon. That's right. This is a short story that heavily mm-hmm. features Miss Lemon, not in such a great way for the most part, which, uh, you know, unfortunately is a bit of a running theme whenever Miss Lemon appears in the text. We are told that she's 48 years old at the beginning of the story. And there's a, a yet another dig at her appearance. She's of unprepossessing appearance. Her general effect was that of a lot of bones flung together at random. I'm not really sure what that even means. I have to say that is not one of Christie's better descriptions because do you know what that looks like? I do not. I'm just assuming that means she's very thin. <laughs> okay, okay. She's bony. 
<laughs> right. You know, why are they some, flung together at random? There are some people who I've dealt with before, usually older ladies who are just very, very, very thin. And it does kind of look like it's a little bit of like a jangly skeleton. I guess it's another way of saying a bag of bones. Yeah, which is really unkind to Miss Lemon because we love Miss Lemon. But that is, I think, what that description was supposed to mean. Well, and we get more, you know, unkind things said about Miss Lemon, more aspersions cast on our beloved Miss Lemon because we're told that she's annoyed that Poirot is asking her advice which is just so not, again, the character that Pauline Moran brings to the screen. Happily, they ran with the Miss Lemon heaviness of this story in the Suchet adaptation. And Pauline Moran is all over that episode. And it's really great. But in the text itself, he asks her for her opinion about things. I mean, it is funny even though it's at Miss Lemon's expense, I just have to read it out because this is what Christie writes. And by the way, I mean, this is a Poirot short story. It's from the mid thirties. So we're not in those early twenties, zippy short stories that are narrated by Hastings anymore. This is narrated in the third person. So unfortunately we don't have any Hastings. So this is what the narrator writes. Very occasionally her employer appealed to her human as opposed to her official capacities. It slightly annoyed Miss Lemon when he did so. She was very nearly the perfect machine, completely and gloriously uninterested in all human affairs. Her real passion in life was the perfection of a filing system beside which all other filing systems should sink into oblivion. She dreamed of such a system at night. Nevertheless, Miss Lemon was perfectly capable of intelligence on purely human matters, as Hercule Poirot well knew. And we just get a lot of this. Like, she hits this over and over again. And yeah, okay, we get it. She's a machine. (laughs) She's apparently an unattractive machine. (laughs) That's what Christy likes to say over and over again whenever Miss Lemon appears in the story. I mean, I will note this much, Kemper, that I've tempted, obviously, in the past when I freelanced and other stuff. And you sometimes will get somebody who, and I really regret to say this, but it's usually somebody much older who is like, okay, let me take you step by step on what file means or how you open Microsoft Word. (laughs) And it's a little bit like, you got to be kidding me, right? How do you think I don't know what that means? Right. People aren't used to such paragons of efficiency as Miss Lemon and you, apparently. Well, no, but I I do feel like Miss Lemon, if somebody had to come in for Poirot, she would just talk about her filing system for the entire time. Oh, she would talk about it for like three hours. And actually, the only other thing I want to note about all the Miss Lemon stuff, because it will feature in an important way in the episode, is that there's this really funny moment where Miss Lemon shows off her know-how as to dealing with the bills. And there are these two bills that she says she doesn't want to pay right now because, quote, it looks bad to pay too promptly when you've just opened an account. Looks as though you're working up to get some credit later on. And then Poirot murmurs, ah, I bow to your superior knowledge of the British tradesmen. And Christy writes, there's nothing much I don't know about them, said Miss Lemon grimly. So she's just, you know, she really knows what's going on. Like that is not something that I would have thought of. The idea that you actually don't want to pay too quickly when it's a new account. So she's uh, she really is quite 
an expert and very I know. savvy. Well, and, and, you know, very efficient at her shorthand, which is delightful in this first scene with her, where she just notes on the back the, let's say, tone of reply that each recipient should get back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she also gets annoyed at Poirot for not using idiom correctly. She thinks to herself, like, he's been here long enough. He, sh- he should be able to understand slang. <laughs> I know. It's it's actually like kind of funny. So she sends, kind of to her surprise, a letter back from Poirot to Miss Barabee, who never responds. Mm. She ghosts him. Pun intended, perhaps, right? Because... <laughs> Uh, the next week always intended the next week miss lemon uh reports that she saw in the paper on her tube ride an interesting article and she says she tore it out but of course that means that she cut it neatly with her scissors which power appreciates i mean these two are just such soulmates platonic of course (laughs) they really are just such soulmates and the article announces that uh miss amelia baraby has died so that is why Miss Barabi never responded to Poirot's letter. And Poirot then dictates a letter, a follow-up letter, which is, uh, you know, a follow-up to his appointment that was never scheduled because he's sort of testing the waters here mm-hmm. um, to see what the deal is. And Miss Barabi's niece actually does respond. And her response is pretty much what we would expect, which is, mm, yeah, this is a moot point because my aunt is dead and what a tragedy. But Poirot goes to Rosebank anyway. And it's funny, but like, this is also at this point now, having covered as much Christie as we have a pattern that we've seen time and time again. And I think it's one that Christie does really well, especially with Poirot, because there are a lot of novels and stories where Poirot is summoned to the scene of a suspected crime only to discover that he's too late. And we had that in The Murder on the Links. We actually had that in Dumb Witness. We also had it in a short story that we covered fairly recently, which was The Cornish Mystery, which I immediately thought of as I was reading this. Um, and even the incident of The Dog's Ball, which is, of course, the short story that became Dumb Witness, the letter that the older lady sends in that one as well is very similar to the letter that we have here in this story. And let's not forget that the American title of Dumb Witness is Poirot Loses a Client. And the reason he loses a client is that his client dies before he can get there. And then we have the novel that proceeds from there. So we're we're in good company here in terms of the framing of the story. Right. So since Miss Barrowby's niece does respond, mistake on her part, Poirot ignores it because all he wanted to see if there was a, was a response, right? Like he doesn't care what the response is. He wants to see if there was going to be one. So he responds to the response letter by going to Rosebank, even though the letter says, don't come. So he gets there and he sees, you know, it's not like the most evocative description of the house, although it's apparently nice and the grounds are tended and there are beautiful gardens, right? Mm-hmm. And he recites out loud, I think, the titular poem. Why don't you um, just recite it again for us, Catherine? Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? With cockle shells and silver bells and pretty maids all in a row. It's an interesting nursery rhyme, isn't it? Mm. People don't really even know like where it comes from, actually. The nursery rhyme itself is a little mysterious. One of the theories is it's about Mary, Queen of Scots, right? 
There's a theory it's about Mary Queen of Scots. There's a theory it's about Mary Stuart, Mary the First, aka Bloody Mary. Um, and you can kind of twist the words to mean what you want them to mean. Um, there's also a theory that it's very religious and it's Mary, mother of Jesus, is the Mary Mary in question. You know, what I found interesting is that some of the lines feature the word cuckold, and then even cockle shells is redolent of the word cuckold. I haven't heard, I haven't come across the word cuckold since uh, you know, the last Shakespeare that I read. He loves to insert a few cuckolds into his uh, plays. I just thought that was interesting. But yeah, there's a lot going on there. And I think, again, Christie really does take a fairly rich four-line stanza and do something interesting with it in a short story. Yeah, and Poirot is being a weirdo and talking to himself out <laughs> in the front of the house, by the way. As he does. <laughs> yes. So um, he's conveniently greeted by a very suspicious Katrina who has obviously seen him talking to himself on the path up to the house. And, you know, she's hostile, I'd say. Were you imagining every time she spoke that it was like Natasha from Boris and Natasha speaking? <laughs> I Pretty was. much. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to do the voice. I'm not, I'm not doing that. But I'm just putting that out there. Think, darling, think. There must be something really rotten we can do today. <laughs> I used to have a neighbor who reminded me a little bit of Natasha from Boris and Natasha. And anytime you would run into her, she greeted you in exactly the tone that I imagined Katrina had. We greet you with open hearts, darling. What would you like to buy? You could also imagine Kate Blanchett in Indiana Jones and the... Uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or whatever that oh, man. Just nightmare of a fourth movie was, which hopefully is going to get washed away by the fifth one that I believe is being filmed right now, or maybe it just wrapped. But Didn't we see that terrible movie together? We did, Catherine. That was a very, <laughs> very early... That, in fact, <laughs> might have been the first night I met you. <laughs> Was for India? What is the name? What is the name of that Drek? You're right. I think it is Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Oh, I'm actually disappointed in myself for getting that right. I, yeah, I, I, I don't want has, that. I, you're right. Yeah, like aliens. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes, it comes down to aliens. Don't worry about being spoiled. We're doing you a favor if that means that you're not going to watch it because you really should not watch it. But Kate Blanchett does such a cartoony and bad Russian accent that I believe she apologized to like the Russian people after the movie came out. There may be hundreds of skulls at Akator. Whoever finds them will control the greatest natural force the world has ever known. Power over the mind of men. Be careful. You might get exactly what you wish for. I usually do. She, you know, it's funny. She also features a heavy fringe haircut that's very similar to the haircut of the actor in the Suchet adaptation. <laughs> but it's not a Ooh. bob. Kate Blanchett's was a bob, whereas at least the actor in the Suchet has kind of a 30s appropriate knot at the nape of her neck. <laughs> now that I know that you think that that was the first time we met... That makes me a little bit alarmed about the basis of our relationship, Kemper. <laughs> I know. I know. That was also in 2008, by the way. So officially 13 years ago. Wow. Wow. Katrina pulling a uh, really camp job here. Um, <laughs> she hisses at Poirot, basically, and insists that she got her money fair and square. And pretty quickly, the, the Delafontaines shoo her away. 
And they assume Poirot is a lawyer, but then obviously he has to inform him that he is, in fact, the Monsieur Poirot detective extraordinaire. So they're like a little freaked out. Yes, they are, because they're like, why did he come? We already wrote to him. What's going on? And Poirot, of course, promptly ingratiates himself with Inspector Sims, who is the Inspector d'Histoire, who's amused that Poirot basically began investigating before the official investigation (laughs) had a chance to get off and running. But there will be an investigation, very much so, because the results are in from the local doctor, and Miss Barrowby was unquestionably poisoned with strychnine. Someone's got some splaining to do. (laughs) Right. I mean, again, there are only like three suspects here, really. Katrina seems an obvious prospect because she handled Miss Barrowby's medicine. So that seems very plausible that she just swapped it out. Especially because the other family members ate the same food. And I will have to say, given that there's fish here, we really missed out on some ptomaine poisoning references. Where is my ptomaine to poisoning? Where are the bulging <laughs> cans? Come on. I know. And, you know, Katrina's bedroom is searched and strychnine powders found under her mattress. Oh, boy. It's not looking good for Katrina here as we are uh, ending our review of the world as it actually is. But the only thing that makes Adele Fontaine suspicious is that they are getting a paltry sum from the will, which would seem to indicate that there's not much of a motive for them for their aunt to die. But they are flat broke. Because mm-hmm. again, Mr. Delafontaine, you know, is, let's just be honest, kind of a loser. <laughs> right. And, and of course, depending on what happens with Katrina, I mean, if Katrina is found guilty of murdering her employer, then, you know, all that money would end up going to the Delafontaine since they are Miss Barraby's only remaining family. The clear motive, though, absolutely lies with Katrina before we bridge ourselves over into the world as actually is by way of some clues. And uh, I would love for you to take it away with clue number one, Catherine. Well, it's the nursery rhyme clue actually being used because the garden is perfect, except in some areas of edging. The question is, if everything else is so meticulous in this garden, why wouldn't these little edge sections be perfect? And it's noted, you know, what material is used to create the edges, right? It's shells. Hmm. Shells, which is part of why Poirot breaks out into that very nursery rhyme. So that's interesting. We might come back to uh, what people eat out of shells and uh, what those foods might taste like and how quickly perhaps they are eaten. Um, Let's move on, though, to clue number two. I already kind of spoiled this clue, but of course it's money and it's inheritance. This is always key and Christie, or we should at least always give it a close look. Sometimes it's red herring, but it really often is not. And the deduction here, again, you know, is really that all three of these suspects could use the money. And depending on what happens with Katrina, depending on what happens with the Delafontaines, if either the Delafontaines somehow get convicted, then Katrina gets all the money. If Katrina somehow gets convicted, then the Delafontaines get the money. Someone's getting the money and they all need it desperately. So they all really have a lucre motivation. And we should just keep that in mind that it's not just the obvious person here who has the lucre motivation, which of course would be Katrina, but the Delafontaines have one as well. So that's just something to keep in mind. 
Right. And clue number three, I mean, we've never really talked about this so much, but Christy does like to use squirrely husbands as a clue. And Mr. Delafontaine is weird and squirming. It's kind of come up before in a number of cases. And, you know, usually it just means, you know, circle back to clue number two, because Mr. Delafontaine is not competent at anything, apparently, including, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, lying competently. Right. No, it's true. I mean, that's a little bit of the when people tell you who they are, believe them clue. I mean, he seems super, super shady. And we should just take note of that. So clue number four is the food preparation. I mean, this is, you know, just one of these classic Christie short stories featuring a poisoning and how is it administered? And you know, there's going to be some sort of a trick here, some sort of sleight of hand. And we know that the food for the dinner was handled in advance by the cook and by Katrina, but everyone ate the same thing. So it couldn't have been in the food that the whole family was eating or else the Delafontaines would have gotten sick also. But the cook and Katrina both had the night off. So the actual service for the dinner, and this is crucial, was done by the family. The servants weren't around. So we know what food was prepared by Katrina and the cook, by the help for the dinner. But isn't it always possible that there could have been a little extra thrown in somehow? Yeah, I mean, about? it's like if you're if you're hosting a potluck and you prepare three dishes and somebody else brings a cake, you know, you didn't prepare it. That's a tough clue and it's very tricky. And I think it's hard to get to the other side of it on one's own, but we will be on the other side in a second. And I would actually just like to add a, one of my meta clues as clue number five. And I already mentioned at the top of the episode that we were going to bring up Halloween Party. So fast forward if you haven't yet read Halloween Party and you don't want it to be spoiled. But we obviously had the exact same situation in Halloween Party in the backstory that we get with Olga, the au pair, and Mrs. Llewellyn Smith, right? Mrs. Llewellyn Smith died. Olga, it turned out, inherited. But then it seemed like maybe she had forged the codicil to the will that allowed her to inherit. And then she disappeared. And then it was Mrs. Llewellyn Smith's niece, down to it being a niece, Rowena Drake, who inherited. And of course, we find out at the end of all of that, that the foreign au pair was innocent. And not only did she not murder her employer, she herself was murdered. <laughs> and Rowena Drake, the niece, was the murderer, one of the murderers. And what's brilliant about that, and it's something that Christy does quite often, is that she is playing on our assumptions as to, in a weird way, almost her own entrenched xenophobia <laughs> that we get, we do get, admittedly, in some other stories. But it's the idea that, oh, yes, this foreign lady is sketchy and we don't know about her. We have no idea what her family is like or where she comes from. Or, you know, she could have ulterior motives. Is she a spy? Like, what's going on? And at the end of it, it's like, no. She was actually just a nice woman who was trying to be a good employee, so much so that she happened to get lucky and inherit a lot of money. And then it was within the family that the complications arose. And then she was victimized by the niece, the very English niece within the family. So we saw Christy do that really well in Halloween Party. And she very much was drawing on this very story. And it's actually really interesting. But within her notes for Halloween Party she makes a direct reference to 
how does your garden grow? She talks about the fact that maybe Joyce saw Mary Drake, and that of course would become Marina Drake, sticking oyster shells in a path on her property. I think that's interesting. And I'm going to come back to that once we actually completely solve this, because I think that the means of murder and the cover-up for the murder directly inspired Halloween Party. It wasn't even just the familial setup, but exactly how this murderous niece actually covered up the murder that I think led to Halloween Party decades later, as you know, Christy was recycling, which we know she liked to do. Again, though, I think that meta clue just has to do as to don't make any assumptions about the foreign character in a Christie because Poirot is foreign and Christie sometimes falls into the stereotypes of the foreigner being unreliable, but often she doesn't. And these are two really good examples where she's doing the same thing as to that. I agree with that. And speaking of that, Poirot stands up for Katrina because what he tells Inspector Sims is that originally he'd said that he didn't think she had any friends. And then he says, you know, I've actually changed my mind. She does have one friend. And Inspector Sims asks him, wait, who am I missing in this story? And Poirot says, well, I'll be her friend. Oh, Poirot. This is where the story gets a little bit off because I don't think it's playing totally fair. Poirot talks to Miss Lemon and he wants her to go to Rosebank with him and he gives her a note. We don't know the contents of the note. We do find out subsequently that he wants her to go to the local fishmonger, but we don't know what the note says. And I don't think that's totally fair. And then to be honest, then her answer also is opaque because she doesn't say it directly. But what we can gather is he asked Miss Lemon to ask the fishmonger if he had sold the Delafontaines something and maybe they were oysters. I think she's playing fair because we know it's a fishmonger and we've been put on notice about oyster shells or shells at least in the garden on the edging and there being something wrong about them. It's a little tough, but what I think is smart about this is that how do people eat oysters? You eat them really quickly and you just suck them down. So it is one of the few foods. And I can I could see Christy, genius that she is, probably like <laughs> sucking down a few oysters herself or watching a friend or a family member do so across the dinner table and thinking to herself, huh. Well, that would be a good way to get a really foul-tasting poison in someone. The oyster has such an overwhelming smell and taste of its own anyway, and it goes down so quickly. There's not a lot of chewing and kind of sensing going on there. (laughs) Well, sit back, listeners, while I tell you a story. I was a vegetarian up until the end of college, and... I, for some reason, didn't realize you were supposed to just swallow the oysters. Oh, no. Yeah. So I went out to like a celebratory dinner with some people and they got oysters. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to play this cool, Catherine. (laughs) Because it's hard to see even like in movie scenes that you're just supposed to slurp them. And it's gross too. Let's be honest. I mean, you you have to eat them somewhat disgustingly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, so I, I, of course, dumped it in my mouth and chewed it. 
And I will be honest, it was so vile, even the thought of it. I was off oysters then for even when I was still no longer a vegetarian. (laughs) I would just look at them and just be repulsed. It took me several years. You know, I knew what I had done wrong, but it took me several years to get back into the oyster game. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I'm not even a huge oyster person. It's all very on the edge for me. I I don't know. I now like them. I like that you can taste the sea. You can definitely taste the sea. That's for sure. I like that. But yeah, it was bordering on scarring. And so if I'd been in their position back at like 21 years old, I would have immediately (laughs) known there was strychnine. Right, that's true. You would have been like, what is this bitter taste and these oysters that I'm crunching on here? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just to fully explicate here, the Delafontaines, they sent the help away for the night because they had a plan and they needed for Miss Barraby to die and they needed to make it seem as though Katrina had done it because their best bet was Katrina being convicted of the murder and then they would get everything. But even if that didn't happen, they'd still get something. And they seem to be that desperate because they've actually been stealing from their aunt and Miss Barraby found out about that. And that is why she sent that letter to Poirot. And she, you know, was very worried about a scandal within the family. She didn't want to tarnish the family name, but she also wanted to get to the bottom of what was happening. And she kind of, it seems as though she really knew probably what was happening. And that's why she was requesting the services of a private detective such as Poirot. Yeah, the Delafontaines bought the oysters. They put the strychnine in them. They served them without the help. So no one was aware of the oysters except for the Delafontaines. And again, because they couldn't have oyster shells sticking out of the garbage, because that would have been noted in the aftermath of the murder, or the death, that is why Mary Delafontaine planted them as edging in her garden. She confesses all this to Poirot. And it is interesting, I mean, especially in the text, this is not the case at all. They actually flip it very much in the adaptation. But in the text, it almost seems as though maybe she's covering for the fact that her doofus husband was the mastermind, and I'm using air quotes there, very hard uh, behind this whole thing. And she is the face of it. But perhaps this is just more kind of grief (laughs) that she is dealing with here as a result of her husband. But, you know, it took both of them. She's fully an accomplice to murder. Yeah, I mean, the text, the text makes it seem pretty clear that this was like her doofus husband's scheme. Yeah, but she's pretty vile. And again, Christy really is playing on our assumptions. You know, Mary's blue forget-me-not eyes are mentioned many times. She's sort of this English rose, you know, very beautiful, very fair. she's She's completely involved in it. It just seems like, because, you know, Poirot's comment essentially is that she loves her husband. So, I mean, I think that the assumption that you have to make is that probably her incompetent husband was the one stealing the money, which gets them written out of the will, which leads to this murder plot. I mean, that's the logical assumption, even though it's not totally spelled out. Yeah. Let's not elevate her character too much. I mean, not at all. Not at all. She's calling her, she's calling Katrina a miserable, intriguing little rat. But yes, I mean, Poirot says, I think madame that you have cared in your life for two things only. One is your husband. 
He saw her lips tremble. And the other is your garden. He looked around him. His glance seemed to apologize to the flowers for that which he had done and was about to do. Because you know that garden's getting ripped up. <laughs> you know, uh, well, yeah, because you know Katrina's not going to be like real into maintaining it. Well, and I mean, the shells are evidence. So I don't think they're going to be delicate about removing those. And then Katrina is probably going to be like, burn it all, <laughs> level <I know>. it <laughs> in her <laughs> Natasha voice. Oh, Boris will be so proud of me. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty good short story, actually. It is. I can see why Christy used it almost about 35 years later as the bones of, you know, or backstory at least of a full-length novel. So this is what I was um, trying to say, but it was it's a lot easier to have this discussion now that we're on the other side of the story. In her notebook, she has this note where she's trying to figure out what it is that Joyce saw in Halloween Party. So again, fast forward if you <laughs> uh, haven't read Halloween Party. I mean, never mind the fact that Joyce actually didn't see anything. She, I guess she hadn't gotten to that part yet in her notebooks when she was still musing about what Joyce saw. Obviously, it was Miranda who saw the murder. But she says that maybe she saw Mary Drake planting oyster shells in her garden, like planting oyster shells on her back path or something. And I think that's such a, a smart and devious starting off point for the murder of a child, because that is believable to me. Like that to me is actually very believable that a 10 year old child seeing a neighbor planting shells in a path would of course have no idea what that is. Even an adult wouldn't know what that is, but then maybe a couple of years later kind of start to put two and two together. Like, I feel like that must have been the starting off point for Halloween party. Obviously it morphed into something very different, but I like that. I, I get why she had to move on to something a little bit more obvious, but it is a really good story. And I think it's interesting that she was able to use it and turn it into something that bore even more murderous fruit. So this I mean, it's funny because you'd think that instead of using them as like proper edging, why didn't she just crush them and put them in the soil? <laughs> I know it's one of those things where, you know, we talked in our live episode about the mysterious affair styles. Fast forward if you haven't read that, but sometimes she has these issues where a murderer needs to get rid of something incriminating. And there it was that letter. And we made so much fun of her for the fact that like he didn't put it in his pocket or eat it or whatever. And, you know, he made it into fireplace spills, but it's a mystery. It's clever. You can imagine someone doing that. I think it would actually be pretty hard in practice to grind up oyster shells. Those things are hard and thick, you know? Like, why didn't she just bury them completely, I guess, so that no one could see them? Like, you don't even have to grind them up to bury them. But, yeah, you know, it's all fair, you know, within a murder mystery, I think. Yeah. I mean, maybe she just thought they looked nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did actually look nice. I might have to use that as a design motif. Doing a little oh. bit of landscaping right now, actually. Oh, in our, in remind place, me not so, to uh... go over to uh, your house <laughs> for dinner. Um, Would you like to come over for, for some oysters, Catherine? <laughs> uh, not now. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. 
Okay, Catherine, I know you've been enjoying some best fiends lately because you won't stop bragging about what level you've reached. Let's just say you are on fire, but that doesn't really surprise me since Best Fiends is a game that appeals to all lovers of puzzles. Oh, of course, because you go through different levels solving little puzzles on your screen, helped out by these cute little critters you collect along the way. Who is your favorite critter this week? It's the same as last week, and I keep upgrading him. His name is Howie. He's a lizard. Now he's dressed in a wizard robe and has a wand. I like that you stay true to your critters. You're not a fair weather friend. Or a fair weather fiend. Good one. There is a good chance that you, our puzzle-loving listeners, will enjoy this game too. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. We should mention, of course, the one adaptation that we have for this short story, which is our beloved David Suchet series. This is technically the second episode of the third season slash series, but the first episode of that season was The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and that was kind of a special feature-length episode. That was back when the series was only doing the shorter 50-minute episode, so that was really kind of an outlier, and this is the first episode of the regular run for that season, and and they had, so they had 10 episodes plus The Mysterious Affair at Styles. It's interesting because in Poirot and Me, David Suchet talks about the invention that they had to do for this story. And this is what he has to say. I thought it was interesting. He said, this is one of her slighter stories, which needed to be expanded in the script to make it even better for a television audience. To be honest, not every single one of her short stories was easily adaptable to the small screen. Some needed one or two extra ingredients to help them along. It was all done with a little sleight of hand, in this case by the screenwriter, Andrew Marshall, to make her stories even more enjoyable. One of the extra ingredients in the first film, this is the episode that he's referencing, is a little subplot about Poirot's new after shave lotion, which contrives to give Hastings what seems like hay fever, but turns out to be an allergy to the lotion itself. The gentle depiction of Poirot's vanity and the confusion about what is causing Hastings to sneeze all the time is one of the film's most charming elements. And it really is. And I actually think we make fun of the series for adding Lori chases or, you know, Lori is backing up and chases down that same country lane over and over again. (laughs) And the ham fisted action sequences, but this one doesn't really have that. It just has a lot of built out character interaction between the family of Poirot and Miss Lemon and Hastings and Jap, which I found really, really charming. And some of it is very silly. The silliest is what he pointed out, this whole runner where Hastings keeps on sneezing around Poirot's cologne at the beginning of the episode. She's the one who knows right away. He went straight inside as soon as he came back from the shops. Didn't even read his letters. Strange. Perhaps he's dyeing his hair. But he's a man. What was that, Hastings? Oh, uh, nothing. And Miss Lemon gives him this look like, "Mm, well, (laughs) it's all very innocent and charming. And by the end of the episode, they realize that he's the one who's wearing the scent. What on earth are you wearing? 
I do not know what you mean, Hastings. <laughs> We're wearing scent. Nonsense, Hastings. I am wearing the discreet manly cologne that I purchased from Monsieur Trumper. For five guineas. Five guineas? I thought it was all his haircuts for a year. That is enough. The office of Poirot is closed for business. Miss Lemon, cover up your typewriter. Good day to you, Chief Inspector Jacques. <laughs> and Hastings, will you please go home and nurse your unfortunate affliction? And as I mentioned, they really run with how much Miss Lemon there is in the short story. And since this is Pauline Moran's spin on the character, when Poirot asks her to put herself in the shoes of this Russian woman, she's totally game. And because Hastings has this seeming hay fever issue where he's sneezing all over the place, which in the age of COVID, I was like, oh my God, please stop sneezing on Poirot. It's really unpleasant. But because of that, Hastings actually stays home and Miss Lemon is the sidekick for a lot of the episode and they travel down to the cottage and do everything. So there's just a lot of fun to be had in the episode. And they even, which is why I wanted to mention the bills that Miss Lemon doesn't want to pay right away, they even took that and made it into an extended runner because Hastings is holding down the fort and he gets this call from someone. Mr. Trump has phoned three or four times. He's really very upset. Perhaps I should send the cash around by messenger. Five guineas will settle the account. Certainly not, Captain Hastings. Just ignore it. I'll have words with him when I return. Yes, but... And on no account disturb the files. <laughs> Cut to the file cabinets pulled out willy-nilly and papers everywhere. Captain Hastings, what is this? Ah, uh, yes, I, I was going to explain about that. I told you not to pay this account. Mr. Trumper was very persistent. And what's actually really interesting is that they improve on the short story, I think, because rather than the reason that Miss Lemon gives in the text, what she says is... But you don't know tradesmen. If you pay in cash, they'll never forget you. They'll think your checks aren't good. Of course! And that is what leads... Poirot then to ask her to go to the fishmonger. And the reason why the fishmonger remembers that Mary de la Fontaine bought those shells is that she paid in cash. So there's a little bit more connective tissue there. And they add this whole clue with the seed packet that I thought was a little bit much, but that to me worked. And I actually thought it was a really great episode. Yeah, I agree. I do think it's funny, the idea of, especially like in this day and age, like a tab. Because that's essentially what she's saying, right? Yeah. Like, and I have to say, I went someplace the other day and I needed to break up a uh, bill and I paid in cash. And for some reason, I felt very suspicious doing it because I'm so not used to it. And especially, especially in the, you know, the pandemic age, people don't want cash, but like I needed change. So it was one of those things where it was like, oh my gosh, I'm like the weird creep who's handing cash to somebody. Germy cash. I know cash is like yet another object that could just have germs on it at this point. It's funny. I was away for one of the first times in a long time this past weekend. And I had that thought too, that it was really strange that I didn't have any cash on me. And I actually had zero cash the entire time. And it's just so easy to use your credit cards now. And that really has changed. I mean, that's something that I think if we were able to try and travel back, even just to say 1998, I think we'd be really, really surprised 
by how much more people were using cash then. Oh, I mean, I don't even think that far. I remember going to, I guess this would have been right before Los Angeles got Uber. I used to take cabs because I don't believe in drinking and driving, nor should any of you. And I had been picked up on a really bad date and was leaving the hotel and had to get a cab because I wasn't going to let the guy drive me home and got another call from somebody I knew who asked if I wanted to hang out and it was early. And so I was like, okay. So I didn't think twice about the fact that I had not prepared and didn't have any cash on me. And the LA cab drivers probably still, but at the time were notorious for not accepting credit cards. Mm -hmm. And this was not that long ago. This was six years ago, probably. He's like, I'll stop the meter here. If you will go into this sketchy convenience store, somewhere in East Hollywood, I think, because I was going to Los Feliz. If you will go into this convenience store and get cash, I will stop the meter and you won't have to pay for the rest of it. And I was like, oh gosh, this is sketchy. (laughs) I did, but that was not that long ago. There's a good chance that we paid for our tickets for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull with cash. That was, you know. I doubt that. I doubt. (laughs) I am sure those were booked online because. I bet we paid for concessions with cash. Maybe, but I think that Los Angeles has had assigned seating as long as I've lived here. But you know, yeah, it's just, it's a weird thing about how much it's gone out the window. And the funniest thing is like when I've been in a checkout line and seen somebody in front of me paying cash, I've always felt a little weird about it. Like, oh, where'd they get that pile of cash from? (laughs) So when I was doing it the other day, I was just like, (laughs) it's been a long time. Miss Lemon was ahead of her time. She was um, ahead of her time. In, in this and many other ways, of course, that being Pauline Moran's Miss Lemon, which will always be my, it's the one exception within the Christie verse, right? Where I truly prefer the adaptational character as opposed to the textual. Well, she's one. just so fleshed Only out. One. She's so, she's fleshed, so much out. fleshed out. Yeah. And the finger curls, we just have to mention it every time. She's just got some fantastic finger curls. It's just, yeah, it's worth I just repeating. Love that they're glued on. I did also think it was interesting. There's a lot of USSR Soviet hijinks going on in this uh, episode. And this is where, you know, we don't often note the date that the episode was produced slash aired. But this is, again, the third season. It aired in January of 1991. Communism uh, had been falling and was about, you know, about to officially completely fall pretty soon. And it almost feels like they're dunking on the USSR in this episode a little bit because it's so ridiculous. There is no possibility of error in the state information files. Comrade Stalin makes no provision for mistakes. They really go hardcore with this Russian character who is we're supposed to suspect that she's a Soviet spy, but then it turns out because she's actually very religious and obviously the communist regime was notoriously anti-religious. I guess they would say a religious, but because of that, she hates 
the Soviet regime. At the end of it, actually, after she realizes that she's going to inherit all this money from her employer and she's reunited with not a fellow spy, but her lover, apparently. Thank you, Monsieur Poirot, for not betraying us. One day we shall be truly free. Take us to the Ritz. Swipe me, she's the Queen of Sheba. So she's just a little capitalist through and through, and she's going to enjoy herself, apparently, in uh, 1930s England. I just thought that all was a little goofy and unintentionally funny. What was very intentionally goofy and funny was Poirot having a flower named after him. And so it is with a deep honor that I salute this most beautiful of flowers, which shares my own humble name. Thank you. Which is how he meets all these characters. And they have to get around that whole, you know, non-dynamic way that the case is always presented to Poirot or often presented to him in these short stories. And I think yet again, they did a good job of that. And they're just, they're just having a lot of fun in this episode and with the story, but completely preserving what makes the story interesting and a successful Christie mystery. And that's just what this series does. I just love this series. Me too. I mean, as I'm sure do most of our listeners, it's hard not to. Very hard not to. Well, I think that that is How Does Your Garden Grow? We always love visiting Poirot in short story form, and we still have a handful of those left. Sniff, we are not quite at the end of um, our Poirot offerings either as to short stories or novels. And speaking of novels, uh, join us for our next episode when we will be covering our next novel, which is Passenger to Frankfurt. I would just like to tell you all, I have been a passenger to Frankfurt three times. I've attended the Frankfurt Book Fair thrice in my life. I will be regaling all of you with all sorts of stories of my Frankfurt exploits. Hopefully I won't. If I am, that's an indicator that we don't have a lot to discuss as to the text itself. I don't know, Kemper. We've all been hearing you for more than five years. You might be regaling (laughs) us with those stories regardless. So (laughs) I think that we uh, will have a lot to discuss both as to the text and our lives. And I hope that you wouldn't have it any other way. I know that we would not, or at least I would not. I don't know about you, Catherine. (laughs) No. It's going to be an interesting one, folks. Sure is. Do you think it's going to break into the top 10? (laughs) 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 One of the few that was never adapted, so we will not have an adaptation. (laughs) I wonder why. Yeah, that might be telling. We'll see. Uh, So Passenger to Frankfurt is up next. Of course, if you would like some bonus content from us, you can head on over to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at allaboutthedame. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And please take a moment to rate or review us if you haven't yet done so. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.